and Mark Silver, the director. Come on, Mark. <laughs> They'll bring another. We'll, we'll start while standing up, Mark. Um, uh, at first, thank you for, 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 all the, for all the horror of it, such a very elegantly told story. I think it was beautifully made. Uh, th there's a lot of issues here. We'll, we'll get to the larger issue that, that Professor Barber referred to, of course, the, 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 the police violence, which is very much also influencing all the, the African-American emotions in this story, too. There's the, the issue of stand your ground. There's the issue of, of the image of the other, the imagery, uh, the fear of the other. So there's a lot of issues to be dealt with. Um, but uh, you're British. Um, you could think this is an American story, or isn't it? What what triggered you in this story? Um, I think in the uh, in the micro sense, of course, it's an American story, or it's even a story of that particular city. Um, but when we when I first found out about the story, and I was just interested in sort of forensically examining what happened in that three and a half minutes, but not necessarily in like a legal sense what happened, but what happened up here, and, and why is it that things like that can happen, and what is it about uh, society, media, power structures that can allow something like that to happen. And in that sense, um, once I you know, felt my way through that, of course, that's a very universal, there's universal issues at play there when it comes to power structures and, and race, essentially. Yeah. So, uh one of the elements there is the image of the other, which brings us, I think, in a way, uh, to, to McWorld too, because it's referring to MTV and to the image of black people that is projected there, Mr. Barber. What we see in this film is a recipe for brutality. Three elements in the American system. One, the lack of gun control everybody's armed, particularly in the rural parts of American places like Florida. Second, a law, not just self-defense, but stand your ground. And as I think you made wonderfully clear for us, that law basically says you have a right, when confronted with what you perceive as violence, not to back off, not to retreat, but to stand your ground and use deadly force against someone, and this is key, whose threat is perceived by you. Perception. There doesn't have to be a gun. You have to prove that you thought there was a gun there or a weapon, not even a gun, a pipe might have been enough. So, so you, take, you take the whole country's armed, right? Then you take the right to use deadly force and stand your ground, and then you put together with that a long history of racism. You put those three things together and the at one point, the prosecutor said, had this been a group of white kids and a black man who shot them, even with those other two elements there, with stand your ground and armed and so on, it's, it's highly unlikely there would have been any contest at all. So those three things are recipes for violence. And when you add to that the fact that in many cases, the police themselves don't protect the people they're supposed to protect, you get a terrible outcome. But one thing to notice, and here's a, a sort of in a way unfortunate, all of your film was about the first trial. In the second trial, justice was done. 
Don't forget that. Justice was done. A second jury went in and convicted him of first-degree murder. For, so for all the, it's easy to look at the first part of the film and says, there's America again, you know, letting white murderers go when they murder black people. But in the second trial, justice was done. So the system can work despite this recipe that we saw. But I think what you did so brilliantly, Mark, was to show us how this recipe creates a situation in which blacks, black teenagers and so on, are subject to a death sentence simply for having, as the prosecutor said, a big mouth. Yeah, and um, we didn't delve into it because we couldn't put an audience through watching the second trial. <laughs> Um, but the well, the way you did it, yeah, I could have maybe I, I could <laughs> have had two. another one, but <laughs> but interestingly, it wasn't the same uh, defense lawyer, um, and also Ferguson had happened in between the two trials. So I like, I mean, the the positive part of me likes to think that Ferguson and everything that was discussed at Ferguson had an impact on that poten the potential jury members at the time. But sometimes I just think that lawyer in the first trial was so good and cost about $100,000, of which the family didn't have for the second trial. We're, we're given a state defender um, who you know, just clearly wasn't as good at sowing those seeds of reasonable doubt that the first lawyer was very good at. Because that's an element then, when you talk about justice being done, there's an element of money in that, isn't there, Mr. Barber? But we wanted, did anyone see uh, the film yesterday about the neo-Nazis in North Dakota? Was anyone here? For, uh, because that's a film in which neo-Nazis intimidate and terrorize a white community, and the man who does it is put on trial and released. The judge releases him in a plea bargain because there, even a neo-Nazi in effect gets justice. It, I mean, the great thing about the American system is it does insist that the innocent are guilty to proven otherwise, which meant that Mr. Dunn, horrendous as he might seem to us in seeing the portrayal you give, had the right to be considered innocent. So getting a conviction is not easy in American courts, and in these circumstances, it's even harder because a white man who's killed a black man uh, is going to be in a much easier position. But the fact is the justice system uh, does presume innocence, and that's a great virtue of a system. There is, there's this incredible key scene, I think, in which Rhonda, uh, the fiance of, of Dunn, gives her testimony on if he, if he mentioned a weapon, a gun. Uh, you, you put the emotions of Jordan's mother and, and her emotions then, then next to each other. What, what did you think when you saw that testimony? She, should we commend her for her bravery and honesty? <laughs> yeah, I have mixed feelings. Um, in, since the film has done like lots of festivals and I've experienced people's reactions to that scene, um, like I think we knew it was a kind of very minimal hero's moment for her in terms of the narrative, and it comes at the beginning of Act 3. Um, and in parallel, uh, both women take some strength from that particular moment when obviously in the previous acts they're you know, destroyed, both of them have been destroyed by what happened in those three and a half minutes. Um, but when you look back, as I have done actually over the last couple of months at the initial police interview that she did 24 hours after the killing, at that time, she didn't, she, had said no to all those questions. 
So if she would have gone back on her word, she actually would have perjured herself, right? So that takes away somewhat like the heroine moment that she has. Um, or just puts it earlier. Well, she told the truth. She told the truth, but she didn't realize the implications of that truth at that moment in time. And she also hadn't obviously realized that Michael Dunn had already known that if he perpetuated this story about I feared for my life, then he would have a chance of getting off. And she just wasn't aware of that during her first police interview. I think she subsequently became aware of that as she obviously met Michael in prison or spoke to him on the phone or spoke to the lawyers. The other, the other moment I just wanted to ask you about, for me, the other moment, his young black friends also told the truth because they, they said, yeah, he got really angry, he swore, he, and has he done it before? Yes. They could have said, no, this was, he was provoked. They said yes. So they were, they were equally honest in, in ways that could have hurt uh, him. Totally, and I think that's super important in terms of just uh, that's what all teenagers do, and that's how all teenagers behave, like white or black, and I think that was really important, and uh, yeah, really good. Another thing I wondered about was uh, the material, you, the audio of the phone calls between Rhonda and, and, and Dunn. Um, First, how did you get it? And second, <laughs> and second, did these phone calls play a role in uh, in the case? Was it played in the, in the courtroom? No. So the phone calls. Um, so I first heard one of those phone calls on local media. Was like obviously fascinated and delved into how you can get hold of them. And incredibly, in the state of Florida, if you're like a guest of the state in, within the state system, um, those phone calls are on public record. Um, and you just have to like call someone in the state prosecutor's office to get access to those phone calls. They redact any information, like if I would have mentioned my bank account details or something. Um, but other than that, so like 98% of those recordings are not redacted. So then we got set, you know, sent a link to all those recordings. And uh, in parallel to that, we had requested interviews with Michael Dunn, with Rondo, with his family all of which they, you know, declined to be in the film. Um, they actually never even apologised or have even spoken to Jordan's parents, so I think coming, you know, straight to us would have been too much of a leap for them. Um, but then subsequently, as we started listening to these phone calls and obviously, you know, selecting parts that would help us construct the narrative of Michael Dunn's character, obviously they reveal stuff that, is much deeper than we ever would have got on a face-to-face -face interview in a prison cell. Um, and I mean, I, I think they actually, I think if Michael Dunn saw this, he would feel those phone calls did justice to his argument, obviously totally warped, but I feel that he would watch it and be like, oh, the filmmakers did listen to my opinion that this is what happened and this is the fear I felt and this is the injustice that I've gone through. Well, I think it's pretty incriminating, yeah. It's, but on the other hand, obviously most like sane people would be like, that's pretty incriminating. <laughs> Professor Barber, as for, as for the, the, the bigger story, uh, in, in your introduction you, you, you mentioned the, the police violence, of course, of, of which we've seen many examples uh, of, of uh, black youth being shot by, uh, by policemen. Um, what, what 
is uh, the root cause of that. You, 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 you mentioned a racist uh, history, of course, in, in America, but there seems to be also this, this element of, uh, of fear of the other, of imagery, of the, 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 the rap crap, uh, as, as Michael Dunn put it. Uh, the way it's portrayed, while these, these kids explain, but when we talk about struggle, we talk about you know not having access to Facebook and finding a girl. What's playing there? Well, let me say, I, I want to respond to that, but I also want to say a word more about the police and the justice system, because we want to remember that the police are the public front of a justice system. They're part of the justice system. They're part of the criminal justice system, which includes the police, prosecutors and defense, the trial system, lawyers, the justice system, law, and ultimately punishment in prisons. Those are all the criminal justice system. And what we see, I think, in the United States is a problem with the front part of the criminal justice system, particularly. The courts, it can vary, it depends on where, but more often than not, at least in recent years, the verdicts haven't been too bad. There have been some pretty bad verdicts, but on the other hand, a lot better than what the police do. So the leading edge, the interface with the public, particularly with the African-American public, of the police themselves has been really difficult. This didn't play a role in this particular case uh, at all, other than the, uh, and in fact, uh, there it's surprising that the police didn't go uh, looking for weapons uh, because that would have helped you know them maybe show that these black kids were guilty and they were just sloppy in this case and that often often happens but I, I think we want to distinguish between the, the, the trial jury trial by jury the criminal justice system and the courts and the law and the police and the police have been the weak the weak link in this yeah. how come they're they're the, the Two things, I mean, fear, the fear that he, I think, pretended to, and I just don't believe that Dunn was really afraid. I believe he created a confrontation and then lost it and just shot them. I don't, I don't believe uh, there was fear. But the, in fairness to racist policemen, they go out in the streets and you will read about cops being murdered in the halls of, uh, of, of, uh, of projects where African-Americans live, confrontations with them. So the police go in scared. And you might say they're professionals, and they shouldn't be. But they go in scared. They stop a car, and once in a while, somebody in the car shoots them. So they go into every case. So they start with fear. And then if you add to that this racist element that sees in black skin danger for them, the simple presence of black skin, or youth, or that music, which represents that, inspires a fear in them that triggers the racism, the racism triggers the fear and leads to behavior. The problem is they're police professionals and they're supposed to be in control of their emotions and control of their fear. In a certain way, a, uh, an ordinary civilian white guy who's just a racist, you can maybe see him not controlling himself. The cops are supposed to control themselves. They're trained for that purpose. So when they are the weak link, uh, not only are professionals not doing their job, but they've exposed the entire criminal justice system. And here's just a statistic for you. Uh, one out of three African Americans between 15 and 30 years old has been involved with the criminal justice system. Arrested, indicted, on trial, in prison, or on parole. One out of three young men between 
uh, between that, uh, between those ages of 15 and 30, uh, uh, many of them unemployed, many of them losing their civil rights, as happens when it goes to prison. So the whole criminal justice system and the way it responds to the African American community means that you're in a very, very difficult position. Mayor de Blasio of New York, as you know, is in a mixed marriage with a, a lovely African-American woman, and he has two children. Uh, he has a boy, and he has said publicly, he tells his son, the son of the mayor of New York, be careful when you go out, watch your mouth, because even though you're the son of the mayor, a New York cop might kill you if you say the wrong thing. So that fundamental issue, which you really, you know, in, in this film makes so clear in, in, in the beauty of your presentation, goes right through the system right across the United States. Did you, did you speak about this with, with the kids, uh, with, with Jordan's friends and with Jordan's parents while making the film? Yeah, we spoke about it. I mean, it's just implicit in all the discussions you have, but with the, with the boys um, and Aaliyah, his girlfriend, what's amazing is they don't speak about it with like, political with a capital P, right? They actually look at that generation and everything you just described as, uh, that, that's like represents a bunch of losers who don't understand what the world is about today. We, as 17 year olds of that generation, we don't see the world like that. They're old school. So our biggest concern is Facebook and Instagram and girls and gas money and whatever. Um, his parents, different story. Um, I think they, all of their parents had suffered like racism and systemic abuse. And I think even uh, Ron's grandparents were in one of the world wars and the black soldiers were put at the front to march at the front and they weren't allowed to carry weapons because the white soldiers thought they would turn their weapons up. Like insane stories that go back as you know, generations and generations. So I think his parents, carry something that's a lot stronger than that 17-year-old generation. But yeah, you look at it, you can't help but sort of know that the whole thing is like inbuilt into the system, that there's an epic trajectory that takes you to that point of what happened that day. Well, the dip, what, a change, of course, is that the older generation of African-Americans uh, minds its manners, however angry it is, understands the dangers. And young people, which is, a kind of backhanded compliment to the system, are strong enough and fearless enough to, in effect, say to things that their grandparents just were quiet about, to say, excuse me, but this is what they say, fuck you. <laughs> that, 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 you know, so they don't take it anymore. They still get killed for it, yeah. but they simply don't take it anymore. And that is a sign, I think, of the strength and the fact that at least parts of white America also say to that system, because if you look at the Black Lives Matter movement and look at who's marching and look at the people who are outside demonstrating, you will see there are a lot of white people mm. there too. This isn't just African Americans against whites. It's people who care about justice for African Americans and for all of America who are part of this. So there are some <coughs> fundamental changes uh, that in a strange way, the belligerents of the young men in the car was a sign that they feel this is our society and you're not going to push yeah. us around. And you I, won't do I, it anymore. And I think that, that going back to the fact that you don't think Michael Dunn did feel a genuine fear, I think that's essentially what it was really about. It mm. was like, you're not going to talk to me as a white man and I'm going to retaliate to that reaction. You didn't threaten me, you disrespected me. And the prosecutor was very good. He's, he opened his case in his opening argument. He said, yes, 
he disrespected him, but he didn't threaten him. And that's a okay. fundamental difference. And I think so. I think Dunn killed him because he was disrespected. I'd like to give you uh, the opportunity to ask questions. If there are any burning questions, please. Over there in the back. Is there a microphone coming? Yes, there is. Please, please wait for the mic. So we can all hear you. Hello. It works. Thank you so much for being here and for showing us this wonderful film, uh, which I'd never seen before, but I'm very impressed with. Uh, I have a question for Mr. Barber, and perhaps also for Mr. Silver, which is, but particularly for Mr. Barber, you mentioned instances of racism with this particular Mr. Dunn and perhaps also with some policemen. And then you also mentioned fear. Um, perhaps you've read this recent, very much celebrated book by a man called Ta-Nehisi Coates, who talks about the black body simply being perceived as worth less than the white body. So this is rather than particular instances of racists or racism, this is institutional racism that is much more deeply ingrained in society rather than in individuals. I wonder if you can comment on that in relation to this film. I have read that uh, book by Coates, which is modeled a little bit on a book that uh, James Baldwin wrote in the 1950s, uh, to, I think, his nephew, uh, also talking about what it meant to be black and how dangerous it could be. And uh, Coates does talk about the fact that simply living in a black body is to live with a kind of vulnerability uh, that people in a white society don't, don't experience. I want to say, by the way, you make your own judgment. Everybody should read the book. It just won the National Book Award uh, yesterday. Uh, but it is a book, I think, that also has problems, because it's a book that thinks every white is, in effect, like it or not, a racist, just as every black, however well off, however privileged, uh, is at risk. And it deals in a kind of dualism that I think is unfortunate. It also says there is no hope. He says to his son, you will forever, no matter what happens, be at risk because you have a black body, and there's nothing you can do about it except try to protect yourself. So it's a book that in some ways is deeply pessimistic, and you might think, and some people might think that pessimism is warranted. I read you know, it and that we should be. Well, we can argue, but that's what I'm saying is that it, Martin Luther King didn't think it was warranted. I know a lot of African Americans who are fighting hard, including the President of the United States. And again, I don't think we can dismiss the fact that a man in a black body sits in the white house. Uh, that is something that would have been unimaginable uh, not, not very long ago. But the book is very worth reading and, as you say, does go to the deeper question of how far and how deep and how pervasive and how broad the racism is. I do not agree that every white is racist. I do not, believe, I do not agree that there is no hope uh, for, uh, for justice and equity in multicultural societies because it's not just the United States, it's all over the world that these problems exist. And we see the battle everywhere is between multiculturalism, diversity, tolerance, and a respectful society, and people turning on one another as they do in Paris around the issue is Islam, as they do in the United States on race. But the book by Coates uh, is, is a, a very, very important book. And thank you for putting it into this discussion, because it belongs here. Thank you for your Mark, answer. Mark. I'm just wondering, I don't think Mr. Coates says every white person is racist. I think he says the society has institutional racism, and therefore, white people being part of that society, there's racism involved. I genuinely, I just read it, don't think he says that every white person is racist. We could do, okay. he, he, he refers to whites as, you know, people who think they're white. Yes. 
And not everybody does think with, that okay. way. No, but well, that's, that's <laughs> anyway, that, we don't okay. get into that, but it's a book worth reading and it's very controversial right. and very provocative as our little discussion here suggests. So thank you for that. Please, please go on after, uh, <laughs> after the session. Um, Mark, I saw you having yeah, second I, thoughts well, on yeah, some I, of the I things. I haven't had time to read the book, but uh, Ta-Nehisi hosted a, a screening of this and a Q&A with Jordan's parents in Washington a couple of months ago. Um, I mean, I'm not as optimistic as, as how you just described the situation in America, just because, look, I, I mean, the, why, the reason I thought Michael Dunn, bringing it back to the film, was a, was a fascinating character was because um, I didn't see him as some crazy guy. I saw him as a, as a part of a metaphor for his ignorance as to his own racism for me during the film became this metaphor for parts of America being ignorant to their own racism. Yeah, he even says, I'm not the racist, they're the racist. Yeah. yeah, and for me, I mean, without getting heavily into it, so because we don't have time, but I would imagine that links into lots of the themes that are in that book. Any other questions over there? Yeah, the lady. Um, According to the young friends of uh, Michael, do you think their um, political consciousness has been raised by this film now? The, the friends of Jordan. Uh, sorry, yeah. friends of Jordan. Um, I would say no, but I think that's um, a kind of willful decision that they don't want their lives to be politicized. I think they know that they could be part of this bigger movement, the Black Lives Matter, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But honestly, I, in a very genuine way, I think they are just more interested in girls and Facebook. And I, do, and I don't mean that in a dismissive way. I mean that in an empowering way. Any other? I saw, I saw you here, yeah, here at the front. Uh, it's coming, no, it's come from the other side, yeah. Um, just a small question for Mr. Silver. Uh, but I was wondering uh, if the alcohol, alcohol abuse of Mr. Michael Dunn was an issue in the trial. Uh, it wasn't an issue in the trial because the police never reached him till about 24 hours after the shooting. Um, so by that time they couldn't test for alcohol, so therefore it wasn't used in evidence in the courtroom. Because the, the, the testimony of uh, forum cokes uh, yeah. is not enough then? or Apparently not. Apparently not, okay. But it wasn't evidence. That was, the, was the jury told to uh, to not pay attention to that because that was put in the trial? Yeah. So unless the judge said, the, "Don't, don't." Yeah, pay it attention became to part it. of the uh, the story of what happened that day, rather than like specific okay. evidence. In okay. the same way that race <coughs> wasn't allowed to be discussed in the no. courtroom because it wasn't defined as a hate crime. Also, race is circumstantial. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Anybody else? If not, then I will, yeah, uh, yes or no? <laughs> you, you, okay. Um, we're talking about the justice system in the United States and the role of the, the fiancé who is turning against her uh, lover, Mr. Dunn. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you call it like heroism. And I wondered, is, is it not also that she's... Um, intimidated by the system more than Mr. Dunn who sits there being part of it. I and, mean, and, 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 the, and the fear of perjury like, like you said. No, probably. without the fear of perjury, oh, but okay. just being intimidated, intimidated by 
I'm sitting here, I'm supposed to tell the truth, that's what I do. Intimidated is a strange word, though. I mean, <laughs> that's a good thing, isn't it? If she's uh, intimidated well, into telling the truth because she is in a system where you're supposed to tell the truth. I, that's I, I, that's I, I, true, <laughs> but if not everyone is intimidated, it's not. Um, I mean, I, I don't think she's intimidated, but the reason I think I don't think that is because since the film's been made, she's actually been in touch with me on Facebook. She doesn't behave like someone who's intimidated by the system. Um, I think maybe she was naive in her first police interview. If she wanted to not tell the truth, she should have been less naive in her first police interview, but I don't feel that she was intimidated. I think she was totally screwed up and in, in the sense, I think what happened to her totally screwed her up, as it would many people. Like mm -hmm. mentally, she was on antidepressants, you could see her hat, you know, she was fearful. Um, but I think that's because she was emotionally, like the jeopardy of what was going on to her was going to wreck, you know, the future of her life in terms of her fiance, marriage, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe even home and finances, like everything. But I don't think she was uh, intimidated by the system. Okay. Okay. I, th I, I fear we have to wrap it up. Did you have a last comment? Yeah, let me, let me just say, for all of us, it's always, is the glass half empty or half full? Does racism win? Does uh, those who hate multiculturalism win? Do Islamic terrorists and those who want to put down Muslims win? Or is there hope for a fairer, more democratic society? And I don't think we have an answer, but I think we do need to put we do need to, like the scales of justice, put the weights on both sides. And uh, let me say that the American criminal justice system does very often succeed, both in trying and convicting policemen, even though it also lets some of them go. It succeeded in this case the second time around in getting it, you might say, right with respect to this. There is a large media discussion, and you showed some of the media discussion, which probably added to what happened. I think in terms of codes, I don't think you can be honest and say, well, yes, there's an African-American president of the United States of America, but that has nothing to do with progress. That has nothing to do with any change. You can rightly say that 20% of Americans insist he's not an American and he's not a Christian. For instance, say, well, that, that's pretty grim. That's pretty sad. But nonetheless, he was elected twice to the presidency of the United States of America. That is worth something. But I'll end on your side, on the half empty, saying we're not doing so well. A small thing there, and I don't know if you're aware of it, but the Senate hearings that you showed mm. were being held by Senator Ted Cruz, who yes. you heard make a little comment about the, first, the Second Amendment is the ground right and the right to be armed and so forth. Ted Cruz is now running number three or number four for the Republican nomination of the presidency of the United States. And it's not completely impossible that succeeding the first African-American president of the United States will be the same Senator Ted Cruz, uh, who is himself, though Harvard-trained, deeply racist, deeply... Uh, uh, privileged in the very worst sense, and deeply opposed, uh, I think, to justice for all in America. So we've got one president on one side of the scale, we've got Senator <coughs> Ted Cruz on the other side, and uh, the answer uh, will only come with time. And the front runner in the Republican race, Donald Trump, last week uh, said that they should install a national administration keeping yeah. track but of all Muslim the Americans. The reason I didn't mention that is Don, 
Donald Trump is the front runner, the front runners at this time in the yes, election I'm sure, tend but. never to go anywhere. And if I name for you the front runners four years ago and eight years ago and 12 years ago in the Republican nomination, you wouldn't have heard of any of them. So I, I don't, I, the, the, what bothers me is Ted Cruz has a chance. Absolutely. He's a senator, he's a U.S. senator. Don Trump probably doesn't. But Ted, but Ted Cruz, as Donald Trump begins to go down, Ted Cruz begins to come up. And for me, he's far more dangerous because he's a senator, he's Harvard trained, he's well-spoken, uh, like the defense uh, lawyer, he's a very smart guy, and each debate, he does better. So if, if you're looking for a sign of, to be Absolutely. impressed about, no. it may be that Donald sure. Trump is less that than But uh, none of the other senator candidates protested against this proposal of Donald Trump. Okay, we'll have to leave it at this. Thank you very much, thank you, Mr. Barber, thank you, Mark.